on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. When I look at major threats that would focus on the industry itself, like I say, you're always going to have the street crime and, and the, the, the criminals that, that are going to try their cheating methods. I think that cyber attacks or cyber security uh, is, is a major issue going forward. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 121 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Nick McMillan, managing partner of the Golden Steer Steakhouse. The Golden Steer is the longest continually running steakhouse in Las Vegas, and they're not only legendary for their food and service, but also for their famous and infamous clientele. Nick and I talked about the early days of the restaurant and how it made the shift from Western Roadhouse to Cool Celebrity Hangout, their connection to mob history, and what sets them apart from other Vegas establishments. If you haven't listened yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 120, Rare History, the story of the Golden Steer, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. If you've seen the classic movie Casino, you'll remember Robert De Niro's famous speech about the order of trust in gaming. In Vegas, everybody's got to watch everybody else. Since the players are looking to beat the casino, the dealers are watching the players. The boxmen are watching the dealers. The floormen are watching the boxmen. The pit bosses are watching the floormen. The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The casino manager is watching the shift bosses. I'm watching the casino manager. And the eye in the sky is watching us all. Since the days of Ace Rothstein and the Tangiers, or Frank Rosenthal and the Stardust, if you will, casino security has come a long way. The industry has moved on from binocular-carrying staff wandering around catwalks in the ceiling to a world of digitally networked video recording and facial recognition software. And my guest for this episode of the podcast is here to take us behind the curtain and into that world. Charles H. Berry is an expert in casino and corporate security, surveillance, and investigations, and currently runs his own consulting firm. He has over 30 years of experience in the field, having worked with several major gaming companies, and he's also a former law enforcement officer. He was a detective with the Phoenix Police Department and served as a special agent with the FBI. Charles and I discussed the evolution of casino security over the last several decades, some of the new technological advancements coming into play in the industry, new and emerging security threats to casinos and hotels, and the major event that caused gaming corporations to re-examine their security procedures from top to bottom. Please enjoy my conversation with Charles H. Barry. (music) 
quite honestly, it uh, was back when I got out of the military and started college. I was working full time going to college at night school. And a lot of the um, individuals in my various classes, especially uh, social science classes, were law enforcement officers. And, you know, they were working their shift during the day and they were going to night school also. So I got to uh, associate with a lot of these individuals. They became friends and I actually got interested in law enforcement. Um, One of the uh, lieutenants that uh, was a major fraud lieutenant in uh, the police department where I lived uh, moved out to the Phoenix, Arizona area and actually became a uh, justice of the peace out there. And one day he called me and he just said, if you're looking for a good department, Phoenix is hiring. And one thing led to another. I uh, went out, took all their tests and uh, was hired by the police department in Phoenix. And from the Phoenix Police Department, you moved into a, a very, uh, very interesting place that uh, is the the stuff of legends, uh, if you will. And I know people have got their own minds about it, but you actually spent time working with the FBI. Correct. Um with the police department, I worked a number of details, and um, my last assignment uh, was a operation of both Phoenix police detectives and FBI special agents, and uh, that kind of piqued my interest in federal law enforcement, and again, one thing led to another, and I wound up uh, joining the Bureau as a special agent. Um, didn't make a career out of it. Um, but worked some interesting cases, both with organized crime and then in another large uh, eastern city with uh, foreign counterintelligence. And um, then I had the uh, offer from the private sector that you couldn't refuse. I was going to say, you made that move into the private sector. I assume it was one of those, uh, the as you say, the offer that you just couldn't refuse. Right. It was, uh, to begin with, it was with Howard Hughes corporation. And uh, as everybody probably knows, Howard Hughes Corporation was involved in um, uh, a number of business ventures and corporations uh, from aircraft to gaming. And so I went to work for their gaming company as their manager of, uh, became the manager of corporate investigations for Howard Hughes. Uh, And their their gaming company was called SUMA, which is S-U-M-M-A. And um, I was there for a uh, period of time. And then I had a, uh, another wonderful offer made to me by Mr. Baron Hilton, who was the CEO of Hilton Hotels Corporation. And Mr. Hilton wanted somebody to come on board and create staff and train a corporate security group for the, his gaming operations. And when I began with Mr. Hilton, Uh, We had three operations, hotel and casinos in Nevada, and I worked for Mr. Hilton for 16 years. Uh, The company, during that period of time, spun off its gaming properties into uh, another corporation called Park Place Entertainment, which for me was basically just a continuing assignment of what I did for Hilton. And uh, so I worked... um, for, like I say, Mr. Hilton for 16 years, started with the three properties. And when I left Hilton Corporation, I had roughly 20 or 23 properties worldwide 
that we had either acquired through um, buyouts. Uh, we purchased uh, Bally's. Uh, we purchased uh, Caesars at that time. Park Place Entertainment did. And so the company really grew. And um, it seemed like uh, in my career, I was always on a plane going somewhere with these different development projects. But it was quite interesting. And then um, I left Hilton and um, started um, with Harris Entertainment and basically had similar responsibilities. I worked for Harris for about four years and I started my own consulting company where um, I was doing a lot of uh, compliance and suitability investigations for states that were becoming involved in gaming, um, states that were becoming involved in um, uh, sports, uh, gaming. Um, and so I was hired as a independent contractor as an investigator um, by these states to conduct suitability investigations on companies and individuals. And it actually included uh, work for foreign government also who was getting into the gaming arena and they are in the arena very strong nowadays. And I was hired by them to conduct due diligence investigations on some major corporations, their board of directors, key executives, things like that. I would imagine that that's become a relatively lucrative part of your consultancy in that for the longest time, gambling in the U.S. was Las Vegas and Atlantic City, but now it's it's quite literally everywhere. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, um, you know, through the years, there's been a, a huge rise in gaming with Native American uh, operations. Um, you know, tribal entities have um, really expanded with uh, gaming opportunities, you know, all over the country. So, Chuck, I wanted to have you on the podcast to have a discussion about security within the casino industry and the gaming industry, because I think people kind of have their their preconceived notions that probably come from movies and television about what is involved in casino security. So I thought it might be fun to kind of uh, bust some of those myths and then also learn a little bit about the evolution of security within the gaming industry. Yeah, I think that when we talk of security operations for casinos and hotels in the gaming industry, it's really a, a three-prong effort. Um, actually, four if you include um, your employees nowadays that, as being truly eyes and ears of a security operation to assist. But you basically have your physical security profile, which are, um, I would say, what People are used to seeing your uniform presence in a casino, the supervisors, the physical security of, of a property. And then you have the unseen security arm, uh, even though it's a different terminology, they call them surveillance operations. But the two work together, uh, you know, hand in glove to, pr to protect the assets, um, the customers and the employees of any property. And then third, most recently, and by recently, I mean the last few years, you've got cybersecurity. It is becoming, in today's world, with hostile actors and cyber 
cybercrimes and cyber criminals is becoming more and more important, I think, to any industry, but that includes the casino industry. So I think what I'd like to do is basically start with the security departments or what I term the physical aspect of it. And, and, and again, the goals are, are the protection of, of the assets of your customers and of the employees. Uh, it's to prevent violent crime within the property and also to stop other you know, uh, inappropriate activity within the property. Um, if you're going back, let's say into the 1980s, which I hate to admit I was around during that period of time <laughs> and just got into the industry, um, almost, at least in Nevada, almost all security officers were armed uh, at that particular time. Um, because for the particular company I worked for, I was an NRA firearms instructor and, and I basically taught security officers. Then I, we had a couple incidents occur in Nevada where security officers, you know, they discharged their weapons other than self-defense. And um, as I recall, there was nobody injured in the situation, but just the fact that these weapons were discharged when they shouldn't have been, the industry started moving away from all security officers being armed. And you had a situation where um, maybe it was just the director of security, maybe just the manager uh, or a shift supervisor, if that was permissible with the gaming control board or you know, any gaming jurisdiction or any uh, um, gaming entity, regulatory entity. But as time moved on, um, more and more states legalized gaming and they established gaming agents, state gaming agents. Uh, and they were usually, it's been my experience, they're usually state troopers um, within the state. And they established offices on site at the premises and the troopers were definitely armed. So that decreased the need for armed security officers. And the troopers in most jurisdictions are there 24-7. There's an armed presence at most casinos in the United States 24-7 now. And then many states in their gaming regulations strictly prohibited security officers being armed. Okay, so that's kind of how that developed. Uh -huh. And I've got a number of items that I want to go through. They're in no particular order but just kind of my thought process as to how things have changed uh, in, in the security effort. For example, at, at many properties, as the video recording systems have improved through the years, some security departments have established their own non-casino surveillance monitoring system. And I think that's because, and I'll go into it a little bit later, I think it's because of the expanded effort put on the surveillance operations, the eye in the sky, so to speak, of covering more than just the casino huh. and just the money sensitive areas. And as, as time went on, they started covering garages, parking lots, back of the house areas with employees, elevators, hotels, as they were built, um, uh, nightclubs, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, adult pools, uh, mm -hmm. things like this. And so as that effort expanded in the, what I would term the non-gaming area, but areas that needed protection, then basically 
the security departments started establishing their own small monitor operations where they would watch, security officers would watch the garages, the parking lots, uh, back of the house areas, elevators, other non-gaming type areas. Um, so that was one major change for surveillance or as security and surveillance personnel. Mm-hmm. Now, in today's world, uh, human trafficking is a huge concern for any hotel operation anywhere in the country. But that also includes uh, any hotels that are coupled with casinos, wherever you have a casino and you have a hotel. And security personnel are, are nowadays are taught how to spot um, signs of human trafficking and how to coordinate with law enforcement agencies if they suspect human trafficking. Um, There's a ton of information and training from various local, state, and federal agencies, um, and especially uh, Department of Homeland Security has a a training program. They have all types of videos online. Um, It's a major problem nowadays in the United States um, I think last year it was estimated that there was at least 199,000 incidents of human trafficking wow. in the country. So, wow. I mean, that's not just the gaming industry, mm-hmm. but that is overall. So it's, it's a huge problem. And um, any security department has to be aware of, of what to look for. Um, another change that, that came about through the years is that uh, security officers in some jurisdictions now are investigated and licensed by the state. Um, Back um, even prior to my time when gaming started, uh, your security officer was usually a big burly individual who was looking for cheaters and uh, roaming the casino floor. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Um, Nowadays, it's, it's much different. I know in the state of Nevada, um, there are gaming control regulations that cover the licensing of security officers, especially if they're working on a gaming property in a nightclub. Mm-hmm. They're, they're investigated. Uh, they have to be registered as any other gaming employee has to be nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big change that has occurred through the years. Um, nowadays, uh, security staff is more responsible for making sure that underage individuals do not enter the gaming floor area. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you'll find at your casino entrances, um, postings that have to do with, um, underage individuals being prohibited from the gaming floors. Uh, and in your larger casinos, um, individuals, well, I'll say the larger casinos have multiple entrances or hotels where you could come into the hotel and get into the gaming floor without going through what I call a choke point to where you've got a couple of security personnel that will eyeball you and make sure you're over, say, 30 years of age or something like that, whatever mm-hmm. the standard may be. So while you may not have a casino entrance posted with the security officer, they still are roaming the casino floor. And part of their job is to look for underage individuals. And nowadays, they utilize electronic devices that can scan a driver's license to see if uh, it's legitimate or not 
for a particular person who may appear to be underage. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, and if, if a casino is found to be negligent or pretty lax in that responsibility, and you have gaming agents from that jurisdiction, and they can determine that you're really not looking for these underage individuals like you should be, then most regulatory agencies can levy fines against an establishment and make them tighten up their their observation for underage individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of moving on to the safety of children in general, um, many, many years ago, um, there were a couple of homicides in the state of Nevada that dealt with children. Um, one um, homicide actually took place on a property. Another homicide was of a child was related to a property. And since those days, policies and procedures have been developed um, for handling juveniles who have been found on property, possibly without adult escorts. And there are policies and procedures at every gaming uh, property that deal with what to do if an unescorted juvenile is found on the property. Uh-huh. And that, that can arrange from uh, calling in law enforcement and, to um, work with security to find the um, um, parents or the adult um, guardian of the child uh, to basically techniques for finding the parents or guardian on the property and, and making sure they're reunited with the child. You touched on it a little bit there, talking about the advancements in uh, quality in technology being used for uh, cameras, for security and surveillance within casinos. Um, I wanted to talk about the technological advancements and the evolution there in casino security. When you look back at the, the beginnings of security being used within casinos in Las Vegas. It was quite literally people moving around on, on catwalks in the ceiling and you looking at it now, it really has come a long way, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, um, in, in looking at the, the surveillance operations, um, both the expansion of their responsibility and the expansion of technology, um, has has matured through the years. Um, when surveillance function took hold in casino operations, it was all about watching table games because that was the main revenue stream. Slot machines weren't that important. They hadn't caught on. It was mainly table games. As time went on, the popularity of slot machines came along and, and it became a very serious source of revenue. And so watching slot machines and observing activity around slot machines, that effort was also taken on by surveillance. And then as time has gone on, the surveillance operation has been coupled with the security department to observe other uh, casino and hotel operations because of their revenue generation. For example, um, retail areas like food and beverage outlets, uh, gift shops, 
uh, entertainment venues, you, uh, your theaters, um, nightclubs. Nightclubs are a headache. Um, <laughs> you have adult pools. You have lounges. Um, nightclubs currently in some venues generate or surpass casino revenues. I mean, the nightclubs are money makers. They really are. So along with nightclubs, you've got issues of overserving individuals with alcohol, drugs, prostitution, fights, regulatory issues. Um, in the state of Nevada, uh, the Nevada Gaming Control Board have regulations about how these venues will be run and who will supervise them and things of that nature. Um, surveillance has taken on a risk management responsibility for liability claims such as slip and falls. Um, if you go into any hotel operation or even casino operation where you've got an escalator, you've got cameras at the bottom, cameras at the top, any, you know, any place an accident can occur just about you're going to find video cameras there. Um, surveillance is now involved in emergency responses for robberies, fires, evacuations, uh, active shooters. But those were the responsibilities and, and changes that have come about in the operational part of surveillance. Now, to your earlier point, um, when casino operations started, and I would say up till late 70s, early 80s, surveillance consisted of metal catwalks around the casino above glass where you couldn't see who was upstairs from the gaming floor. And individuals would either walk around the catwalks and lay down on top of the metal catwalks to watch the games with binoculars to look for anything, um, you know, any kind of theft or fraud either by employees or by outsiders or by patrons or, or by both. And in some casinos, they basically had a track that ran around with like a flat um, sled with metal wheels. And an individual would lay on this sled and basically propel himself by hand or by foot around this rail going from game to game or if they thought that they had a problem on a particular game, they'd wheel themselves over and lay above the game and observe it that way. And then, obviously, things started to move toward video recording. And in the beginning, you had these um, video recorders that basically consisted of a recorder and a two huge reels of recording tape. And you had to put a, let's say a full reel of recording tape manually on one side of the recorder. You had to thread the recording tape through the recorder to an empty reel on the other side. And then that's how you would record the games. Um, the magnetic tape had to be swapped manually which was sometimes unreliable, difficult, very costly process. Uh, there weren't a lot of properties that had this system. 
Um, one of the companies I worked with had invested in this type of a system in their major gaming property, and it was utilized there. And it was better than someone laying over the game watching it. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it helped in, in, in that response. And then as time went on, in, this, in the 70s, I think you've got the development of the video cassette recorder or VCRs that were at least most of us are familiar with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it offered a, a, an easier and a more logical way for cameras to be recorded. Uh, it was no longer necessary for people to monitor the live screens or live monitors. Uh, the operators could review the information, the recorded information, you know, whenever they needed to. Mm -hmm. um, the downside of VCRs is the tapes still had to be changed periodically. And that was usually six to eight hours. Now, there were some properties that I'm aware of that had a thousand or more cameras, each one with a dedicated VHS tape oh and a God. VCR recorder. Wow. They had to be changed every shift. And it could take up to a couple hours for an employee to go through, pull the used tapes, put in a new one, put the used tapes by the recorder to be kept for a certain period of time, mm -hmm. usually seven days at that time. And so not only that, but after, let's say, the retention period, most gaming regulators had a retention period you had to keep the tapes and that was usually seven days so after seven days you could reuse the vhs tapes well to continually reuse the tapes it led to degradation of the video sure and and so usually you'd replace those tapes three or four times a year uh to get new vhs tapes um and then not only that, but the VCRs wore out from 24-7 use. I mean, mm -hmm. VCRs were used, were manufactured to be used in your home to watch a, a movie that you wanted. They weren't necessarily manufactured to be run 24-7. Mm -hmm. So they wore out. And in most operations that I was familiar with, we had to replace a third of the VCRs every year. You know, if, if they couldn't be repaired or, or utilized again, and most of the time it just wasn't worth fixing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the VCRs were so inexpensive, it was just better to get a new one. Yeah. And like I say, we changed them out Yeah, a third every year. Wow. So then we move ahead to DVRs, uh, digital uh, video recorders, and they were developed and they basically replaced VCRs. Mm -hmm. So, rather than go through all the complicated mechanics of the difference, just suffice it to say that instead of recording on VHS tapes, the, the video recording was now done on hard drives, hard disk drives, um, and within digital systems. And you didn't need to keep these huge amounts of tapes because regulators, the gaming regulators across the country wrote standards for digital systems to be used within their states. And they included and exceeded the regulations they had for VCR systems. 
Um, and some of the th- regulations they included uh, was basically um, some type of audio and visual notification of your digital system if any part of the surveillance system or the DVR media storage system failed. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you had one of your disks that when f- your hard drives that failed, you had some kind of a um, visual signal on your monitor that the operator had in front of them. And then you had a, an audio beeping or shriek sound or something that would tell an operator, oh, we lost a hard drive. And then to prevent the complete uh, loss of video with the system, you had to have redundancy within your video system. So let's say, for example, make it simple. You had four hard drives in a DVR. And what the regulators wanted to see was redundancy where you had an extra hard drive. And if you had one hard drive fail, the video automatically failed over to your spare. And then that gave you time to repair or replace whichever one had gone bad. Mm-hmm. So that was built into all the gaming regs across the country that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. And then due to the fact that you've gone digital now, instead of looking at just lines of resolution, now you're looking at pixels, uh, which, which form your video. So you had to have a way of, of verifying that that video was authentic if you had to replay it, if the gaming regulators had to use it for prosecution or you had to use it for court, you had to show that, that that video had not been compromised in any way. So you had to develop, and the manufacturers all developed a method of what they call watermarking, mm-hmm. to where they can, when the video is being played, you can take a look at it. And software will be able to tell you if all the pixels are there, if any are missing, if any have been replaced with something, some other form of video. So that was, again, one of the standards that all the regulators moved to. Um, that's still probably the, the main recording system today is the use of DVRs. Um, although some properties and, and many properties have moved on to um, what they call now the latest and the greatest network video recorders or NVRs. The big difference is that, and again, I'm, I'm not a techie kind of guy, mm-hmm. but I can tell you basically that with these systems, you can use high definition cameras or IP cameras. And the difference is that with your DVRs and with the use of analog cameras, your video is basically fed to a recorder where it is processed for viewing. With IP cameras, the video is actually processed at the camera. It's like little computer, Uh if you will, and sent to the recorder for viewing after that. Uh Um, a, A big advantage to NVR systems is that you only need one cable. Uh, for other systems, you needed two cables. You needed one for your video, and you needed a power cable for your device, for your camera. So installation is installation of the cabling is cheaper. Uh, it's more efficient. Um, it's really much better. 
overall installing an NVR system, the components are a little bit more expensive than DVRs. So, you know, there's a constant argument over for your particular operation, which is best. And that's an operational decision. Um, but those are pretty much the technical changes that we've seen through the years. It seems like a lot of places have started to move to the cloud for digital data storage. Is that something that's begun to happen with any of the video surveillance systems within um, casino properties or within the gaming industry? Are they moving away from this uh, situation where um, data and information is being stored locally and starting to be stored at remote locations or, or is it still staying within the properties? The answer to that question is, I don't know. (laughs) The reason I say that is because every surveillance system by regulation in every state that I'm aware of, every surveillance system has to be a standalone system off of the platform of anything else you have in the hotel or casino. It can only be monitored by surveillance personnel and that video and the surveillance room, the surveillance operation has to be in complete control of any auxiliary viewing. For example, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of properties now have taken their back of the house video and partitioned it off to the security department. Only the only certain cameras. Uh, I mentioned garages, parking lots, back of the house areas. Those cameras are still recorded in the surveillance operation, but the output or what you can view from those cameras can be sent to security, and security can view it. They can't do anything to the video. They they can't change the video or anything like that. They can only monitor it. Mm-hmm. So. There is one large casino operation that I'm aware of that the part of their hotel operation and part of their casino operation was hacked. And um, the surveillance operation was not touched because it was independent of the platform that was hacked. Gotcha. So when you mention our surveillance operations using the cloud now, I really don't know uh-huh. because of the strict independence that gaming regulators have mandated in the past. Now, is there, is there a way to, I mean, if you've got an enclosed media system that cannot be hacked from the outside, I don't know if the cloud falls into that restrictive an environment. When we come back, Charles and I talk about the tragic events of October 1st, 2017, and the effect they had on security and surveillance in Las Vegas. Also, we discuss facial recognition technology and its various uses in hotel and casino operations. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. talk a little bit about some of the other new technologies that are coming into play in casinos right now. Uh, Would it be fair to say that facial recognition is probably one of the biggest ones that's being used? Yes. 
Um, facial recognition is being used in uh, some hotels and, and casino operations. It is usually um, not utilized throughout the whole system because there's licensing expenses for each um, video stream. So it is definitely used, though, at all entrances, exits, and in the um, table game and slot areas. Okay, um, Back of the house, probably not. But uh, facial recognition is fantastic. It has come a long way. Um, facial recognition began a number of years ago. And um, I tested one of the first facial recognition systems that was being proposed by vendors. And the history of facial recognition is that it was really developed for um, driver's license bureaus and for prisons um, for the perfect shot of when you sit down to get your driver's license and you've got a flat facial shot, everything is perfect in the video. And that's how it was developed. Then as it, as it started migrating into the gaming industry, uh, obviously we wanted to be able to utilize it to recognize cheats, uh, anybody committing fraudulent acts, um, either on the casino floor or actually elsewhere. And, the first systems didn't work too well. For example, I, I brought in a vendor system and we tested it in one of our larger casino operations. And for facial recognition to work, you have to be able to compare the face of the subject you're looking at with some type of database. There are databases out there put together by properties of, of anybody that's been you know, arrested anybody that's committed any fraudulent acts on the property, cheaters, people of that nature, uh, anybody that's been arrested for crimes on the property. Uh, if, we, if we have faces of these facial shots of these individuals, that goes into a database. So when you start looking at a person on the casino floor, let's say, to see if this person is a cheat, then that person's face is compared to your database. Okay. In the test that I did, I gave the vendor the database of all of our human resource photographs of employees for their badges, because that'd be just like a driver's license. It'd be a perfect shot of that person. So that was the database. Then what I did is I had the vendor come in and I would point to a dealer on the floor and say, okay, compare that to the database. And what I was looking for was close to a one-to-one -one comparison. Instead, what I got was maybe the, the photo of the employee I was looking at, plus maybe 12 to 15 other possibilities. And for example, if I was looking at a dealer who, um, let's say, was African-American, I would get results up of Caucasian females, um, just pictures that weren't even close to the individual I wanted them to find. Right. So basically, they failed the test. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and things have evolved since then. And there are systems out there right now that are just excellent, that are used by casinos. And the the good part about it is that they can identify cheaters, card counters. Um, they can be used to identify your high rollers mm-hmm. that go to a game, for example. And let's say um, you've got a high roller who um, has credit limits and can sign markers. Facial recognition can be utilized to compare that individual that's signing the marker with the real player to say, is this really Mr. Jones, the high roller, or is this some fraudulent use of his identification? If you've got high rollers that come on the property without being announced and they go to a a high limit table and they're not greeted by their host or anything like that, you can identify them as being on property and you can send a host over to talk to them, see what they need, you know, during their stay, things of that nature. So it can be used for guest services besides looking for anything that's illegal. But um, that is a, a technology that is, is being utilized right now. Then, and this is some technology that was developed a um, number of years ago, um, it's called non-obvious relationship awareness software, NORA, N-O-R-A. Basically, it's a program, the software that allows casinos, hotels to instantly determine if your employees and players have ever shared a phone number, an address, anything common where if you suspect collusion between a player and a dealer, you can do this real quick check and see if there's any relationship between the two based on public records and, and your own internal records. So that can be utilized. That act, that particular system is actually being utilized for some functions using, uh, utilized by the Department of Homeland Security for some of the stuff they do. Also now there is uh, the ability for surveillance to track casino chips uh, because you have um, chips that have RFID chips embedded in them. Uh-huh. And so any amount of money that a player has can be tracked as to, you know, what, what they're winning, what they're losing, what they're cashing out. Wow. So that is, that is available and that's being utilized in some places. And then a technology that was developed as a result of the tragedy we had here in Las Vegas on October 1st of 2017, a mass casualty incident uh, with a lone shooter. You've got the development of uh, gunshot detection systems that are able to pinpoint an assailant's location, which can be in a building. It could be outside. Um, they utilize um, acoustics and infrared flash detection technology for inside. It has advantages in that it can pinpoint an assailant's location very quickly and tell you exactly where the shooter might be or where exactly where they are. And in many of the active shooter cases in the past, the active shooter moves from location to location through the establishment and with the shot technology that can trace the movement of an individual also. The software that's being developed can 
automatically engage other security systems and protocols that you may have in place, like your, your surveillance video recording system, your lockdown protocols, access control systems, where you can lock down any or all of the property doors, alarm systems, and mass notification systems to the, through your public address systems. So I know that's being tested. I don't know if any properties yet have installed it. I've, I've gone to a demonstration uh, of the gunshot detection systems, and it's, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that is being developed as, as we speak. We briefly mentioned um, cybersecurity a little bit earlier on in our conversation. And, and I assume that this is something that's really being worked on hard right now as well. What I can address from cybersecurity, I'm not a cyber expert. Uh, sometimes with the computer problems I have, I would like to turn it into about a five pound boat anchor. <laughs> so <laughs> I get that. I completely understand that. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, that's, that's my feeling toward computers and, and cybersecurity sometimes. But uh, I do know that more and more IT experts and CIOs, your chief information officers are being hired at the corporate level. In I would say most businesses in general, but certainly within the gaming industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've had a number of you know public record and public information that a number of industries have been hit, number of businesses, a uh, number of well-known companies have been hit uh, with cyber attacks, and the casino industry has been hit with cyber attacks that range from just breaches of data uh, regarding customer information to ransomware attacks where the mainframe and all their software systems were actually shut down Mm -hmm. at a number of properties and for a ransom uh, within one particular state relatively recently within the last couple of years, they had like uh, six casino operations that were shut down with Mm -hmm. ransomware. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not familiar with what the results were. I know they were, the investigations were turned over to federal law enforcement for investigation. But um, it, it's to the point where last year, the Nevada Gaming Control Board um, put out public information warning the gaming operators in the state of Nevada to be very vigilant as it pertained to cyber attacks because the board felt that this was going to be a major challenge in the future and that the um, – properties the licensees need to be prepared for it well in, in my mind it makes sense that that kind of stuff would be high on the priority list for the regulators and for the gaming operators especially after seeing what just happened here um in canada just recently with the the rogers network going down for those that may not know rogers is uh, a major provider of wireless and internet and cable and telephone systems uh, all across the country and their services went down for 20 hours and this affected everything from uh, people not being able to call 911 to not being able to access data when they weren't on a Wi-Fi network to not being able to access internet on their own home networks to even affecting things like um debit and credit payment and banking all across the country because uh, a lot of the various companies that handle that kind of stuff were tied in with the Rogers infrastructure. Nothing's been confirmed as of yet, but there's, of course, all kinds of rumor and speculation that it was some sort of um, massive 
system attack from wherever. So I can only imagine that looking at the the room full of slot machines in a in a gaming floor in a casino, if something were to happen where all of that went down for any extended period of time, that would be absolutely devastating to a company. It would be. And you know, to your point, uh, slot machines are everything's basically everything is computerized. Mm-hmm. All your systems in your hotel and your casino are pretty much computerized, no matter you know, no matter what system you want to look at. Whether it's food and beverage, whether it's reservations, whether it's your slot machines, whether it's casino operations, whether it's security operations, um, everything is computerized mm-hmm. and runs on somebody's net. Well, yeah, I mean, and and not just big things like you say, like a gaming floor and and back of house and um, food and beverage and things like that, but something even as as silly as the the locks on the hotel room doors. A lot of those are now networked and and monitored through the network. So if something were to go down there, all of a sudden you've got people locked out of their rooms. Sure, and it, yeah, it depends on the technology that you utilize in some properties. Unbelievable. And I mean, it really, it does seem like, I mean, I don't want to say a disaster waiting to happen because maybe that's overblowing things, but it it definitely makes you realize why this needs to be such a, uh, a, a high priority for the gaming companies when it comes to security and surveillance. Well, like, like I say, with the letter that I think came out last year from the Nevada gaming control board, it is, it's high on their radar it, it appears to be of serious concern um, for the board. And so that's, you know, that's a direct statement to licensees in the state of Nevada. Prepare for it and, you know, be ready to handle the challenge. So all of that being said, then, what what is the biggest threat security-wise to gaming properties right now? I mean, it, it certainly feels like we've come a long way from the the guy with a card hidden up his sleeve or some dude with a coin on a string trying to figure out how to, how to cheat a slot machine. I mean, does that stuff still exist or, or, or again, are we just so far past that now? Well, that street level threat still exists and still can be successful. It, it, it won't be on the huge scale that you've seen in the past. Mm. Um, For example, there has been a couple of slot cheating teams that have uh, come and gone due to aging, due to being arrested and going to prison, but they were quite successful at attacking, especially the mechanical machines before everything went into the electronic arena. However, there was one team that was still successful in attacking even electronic machines where they developed a device that would interfere with the different RAM devices in a machine and uh, generate a payout. So the threat is still there. Um, I, I think when, when I look at major threats that would focus on the industry itself, like I say, you're always going to have the street crime and, and the, the, the criminals that, that are going to try their cheating methods. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the methods that have been out there, uh, they kind of, they kind of come back every 10 years or so. 
So they're always going to be there and you're going to have people going to try to use them. I think that cyber attacks or cybersecurity uh, is, is a major issue going forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be. Uh, again, that's not my area of expertise, but with the the publicized data breaches, uh, cyber crimes, and the ransomware that has been utilized against big business around the world, it's got to be everybody's concern, especially where you have uh, large sums of money. Mm-hmm. And casinos have large sums of money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think recently uh, there is a big push, I think I mentioned it earlier, for human trafficking mm-hmm. uh, or the detection of and elimination of human trafficking. I, I went through a video course put on by the FBI that basically told security individuals what to look for, the signs of human trafficking for whatever reason, whether it's sex trafficking, forced labor, domestic uh, entitlements, um, whatever reason, human trafficking is, is, is a real problem that uh, people are trying to, to um, take an investigative effort against it and, and prevent it. Uh, and then I think we still have to look at mass casualty attacks such as active shooters uh-huh. um, and terrorist attack. Uh, for example, you know, casinos in Las Vegas in particular have been mentioned over the last few years in two different terrorist publications uh-huh. as good potential targets. Uh-huh. So I, I think there may be more, but just in, in my opinion, those are three important um, issues that are facing the security effort moving forward. It's very interesting to me that you bring up the human trafficking issue because uh, two things here. One, I don't think people realize what role um, hotel and and gaming property security play in trying to prevent and and stop human trafficking. And two, I don't think people realize exactly how big of a problem it actually is. It's one of those things that kind of gets swept under the rug, I guess. But I know there's lots of different people out there that are, are trying hard to stop it. I have friends that work in the airline industry as flight crew. Um, they go through training on how to spot potential human trafficking and what to do if they do. Uh, if anybody has ever been in the bathroom in Las Vegas airport and been inside of a stall, there's stickers right on the back of the door that say, If you are a victim of human trafficking or suspect human trafficking, call this number. So again, I I don't think people realize exactly how bad that situation is. Correct. Um, Because I, I, and I guess that most people in the normal course of their life uh, or individuals that are staying at hotels for business travel, things like that, they don't really notice it. They're not familiar with the signs. It doesn't affect their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Whereas your security personnel in those establishments, yeah, it's got to be part recognizing that the signs of trafficking has to be part of their day-to-day operations. After all, they're responsible for preventing it or being part of the effort to prevent it. We touched a little bit through the course of discussion on things like mass casualty events and active shooter incidents. And when those things are discussed in conjunction with Las Vegas, the conversation usually turns to the events of October 1st, 2017. I know um, for myself, that was a, a particularly 
frightening thing to wake up to news to wake up to um, having friends who all work in the entertainment industry in Las Vegas, knowing that some of them may have been there. Um, it was a very hectic few hours trying to track everyone down and make sure everybody was okay. Um, you were actually working in Las Vegas at the time of this incident. Correct. Um, uh, I, I was working for a, a gaming company and I was their VP of uh, corporate security and surveillance um, on that particular day, that was the October 1st was the beginning of a huge conference in Las Vegas uh, called G2E. And it's one of the biggest conferences, a gaming conference held by the city every year. And this tragic event occurred early in the morning of that first day. Uh, so I was here. My whole corporate executive team was in town for various presentations at the conference. They were staying on the Strip, uh, further north from uh, the hotel where the the shooting occurred. Uh, But yeah, everybody was here. And the October 1 incident really was a a watershed event for security and surveillance in Las Vegas, wasn't it? I mean, and not just in Las Vegas, but I think in in any... um, in the hospitality industry in general, the report that came out afterwards really did reveal some big uh, holes, if you will, in how people are dealt with and, and the way different guests are, are treated in the hospitality industry. What were some of the biggest changes security wise that came out following this incident? Well, I'm, I'm just for the listeners that may not be familiar with it. And there, there probably aren't very many, but and on that particular morning, we had a, a, a gunman who fired from the 32nd floor of a, a hotel with long rifles um, into a uh, group of individuals, uh, like 22,000 people, who were enjoying a country music festival across the street from the major hotel where the gunman was shooting from. And his actions uh, firing with these long rifles led to 58 innocent people being killed and injuries to over 850 survivors. Uh, Then the shooter committed suicide. Now the 850 survivors, the injuries were not all from his direct fire, but many injuries were from people trying to escape the kill zone and, and, and leave the the concert area. But any, since that tragedy occurred, um, variations of, of the following policies and procedures have been instituted at the gaming properties and at a lot of hotel properties countrywide. To back up a little bit, an active shooter up until this point has always been looked at, and I think in most cases, if not all cases, an active shooter involved an individual going into a structure to commit the shooting of the victims. This particular case, we had never seen before. He was shooting from inside into a huge crowd of spectators across the street from a couple hundred yards at least away. We were all looking at active shooter type situations before, but in analyzing everything that led up to this, uh, or, uh, this situation and, and taking a look at what policies and procedures we needed to institute to prevent such an incident again, from happening, um, the first 
issue is the safety and, and security efforts for outdoor events. They've all been enhanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got a property where you've got some type of an outdoor event going on, you've probably written a different policy and procedures to what you do internally. Um, staffing has been affected at the property. Uh, coordination with police and fire departments has been intensified. Um, appearance of law enforcement has been intensified. Uh, enhanced crowd control at, at points of ingress and egress have been improved upon and redesigned. For me personally and for other executives I know at the time that were in charge of security for corporations, we all wrote very serious, detailed policies and procedures for see something, say something. Mm -hmm. Now, that has been around since 9-11. In many cases, it's just something that is said but not necessarily followed up upon, Mm -hmm. and no training has occurred in the past. But basically... Like in, 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 I'm familiar with situations such as myself where in these policies and procedures that have been rewritten, it includes, you know, emphasis on actions of employees and every single major department. Mm-hmm. And that also involves training because your valet parkers may notice something that is unusual or out of the norm that may not affect a front desk clerk or a front desk clerk could see something that won't affect a guest room attendant Uh or a guest room attendant will see something in the room that won't affect the other departments. So it has to be a coordinated effort. It has to be a serious effort and it has to be an effort where training actually occurs for your employees on things that are unusual for their particular department. Um, Also, we've seen the improvement of access control procedures, especially for back of the house areas, Mm -hmm. such as your freight elevators, your guest elevators, your loading docks, et cetera. And that's to prevent non-employee access to employee areas. Mm -hmm. There are some properties now to where every single door that leads from the casino to the back of the house area, everyone's got access control on it. Uh-huh. It, it used to be your employees could just walk back to the house, you know, uh, back to uh, their lunchroom to take a break, things of that nature. Those have all been locked down at, at a number of properties, maybe not all, but a number of properties. A major function that has uh, been established is the establishment of armed emergency response teams now, uh-huh. uh, or ERTs or special response teams, or whatever a property may call it. Most properties now, especially your large properties, or all properties underneath your large casino companies, now have these ERTs. The ERT uh, is basically uniformed security officers uh, that are armed with handguns, and they patrol the casino and the hotel, They can take traffic, as other security officers can, but their main issue is to be able to quickly respond to any violent or potentially violent threat within the property. And included now in these teams, you basically have training and you have a triage component to where if there is any type of violent act, 
you, you have people within that emergency response team who can treat injured people right away. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait for law enforcement to respond because one of the problems, at least here in Las Vegas, is that some of these hotels, as you can imagine, are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, MGM, for example, is over 5,000 rooms. Right. Okay? Some of the locations on the Strip on a crowded day or a crowded night First responders have a tough time getting there. Mm-hmm. And then when they get there, where's the emergency? Where, you know, where, where do we go once we get to the property? So there's a time delay. So now these ERT teams can react to something without having to wait for, you know, law enforcement to respond. Mm-hmm. And they, they can coordinate with law enforcement. Another asset that has been added to security is the use of canines, the use of dogs. Mm-hmm. And these dogs are trained for the detection primarily of explosives and weapons. Some properties actually have the dogs and their handlers housed at the property. And other properties will bring in canine teams from third-party vendors to work on, let's say, their busiest nights mm-hmm. um, you know, or their busiest days of check-ins. And... Um, it seems to be a it's it's very it seems to be very popular and reassuring to the public when you have a handler come through with their dog mm-hmm. as as you have in these large hotels you have hundreds of people checking in at once and for a security officer and a handler to walk through the luggage just like you see at an airport mm-hmm. if you're coming through customs this this dog walks through looking for explosives so that's been a very good resource I had mentioned earlier the research and use of of advanced security technology, such as the shot technology and also weapon detection technology. There's research going on now of how to detect an individual with a weapon when they come in the front door, Mm -hmm. basically. I don't know. Again, I'm familiar with research that is being done in that area, I'm not familiar with any particular property that has utilized it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, from the demonstrations that I saw, it wasn't quite there yet, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to be able to perform as advertised. But again, that's something that a number of companies are working on, and I'm sure it'll be developed. And then lastly, a big change was that rooms with the do not disturb signs will be disturbed. Right. They'll be checked usually within three days or less of somebody checking into that room. It's just a courtesy check. Uh, Guest room attendants have been trained now as to what to look for as far as human trafficking goes, as far as anything unusual, as far as weapons, uh, explosives, things of that nature. They've been trained to look out for that type of stuff, any type of hazardous items. So um, that was a big policy change. And I think off the top of my head, those were the biggest changes that have come about since um, October 1st of 2017. Chuck, do you recall, were there any policies or procedures that were discussed and ultimately not implemented for whatever reason? I know, for example, there was stories going around at one time that properties were looking at the possibility of implementing things like um, airport style security, where anybody entering would have to go through a metal detector and have bags scanned. Was there anything like that ever discussed? Um, after the incident, 
for a period of time and, and permanently in some properties, the elevators were posted by security officers. And they have the ability to uh, search any luggage or anything that appears to be suspicious. Um, at some properties, there are methods of checking baggage that comes in for weapons and explosives. A couple of years ago, I was, or about a year and a half ago, I was consulting on a major project on the Las Vegas Strip. And part of my recommendation was basically that any check type luggage would go through the same type of scanner you'll find in an airport. And this I had recommended to the management team that was building this property. And it is not cheap, but they had accepted it and it was going to be installed. So that is technology that is, has been looked at and um, I think probably is, is being used in various places. It really is a shame that these, these steps forward, if you will, have to come out of such big tragedies. But I guess at the same time, I mean, a, a lot of times we don't think of these things even happening. We can't perceive of these things happening until after they happen. True. And when you look at security in the, the leisure industry, uh, I mean, many of us can fortify a place to where, you know, you've got a castle with very strict technologies and protocols for ingress and egress, but we're not in the business of building fortresses. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in the business of the hospitality industry. You want to make things as safe as you can for your customers and your employees. Um, but it, it, it has to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you can't plan for every possible tragedy that somebody may be sitting in a room somewhere thinking of today to create tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We just can't look into the future. But what we can do is best protect the industry based on the history and current events and what we can see going forward that makes sense. So, yes, are there other things that could be done? Possibly. But is it intrusive on the experience you want for your customers to be able to relax and enjoy themselves uh, rather than go into an armed fortress? You know, you've got to balance it somehow. Chuck, thank you very, very much for taking the time to jump on and uh, have a conversation with me about um, casino security and surveillance and where it's been and where it is and where it's going. Um, this has been a, a really fascinating and uh, an eye-opening conversation. And uh, I, again, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you very much, sir. Jeff, it's my pleasure. Glad to help. If you want to learn more about Charles and the services he provides, you can visit his website at cberryandassociates.com. Mm -hmm. 
And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Oh, 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 oh,